0: Hello and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. I'm Scott David Gordon, your host. One of the things that is most fulfilling to me is to be able to share something with someone else, whether it be a book or a quote or a podcast, and hopefully add value to their life. I've been listening to podcasts for years, and when I would hear one that reminded me of a friend, or I thought it related to a struggle they were having, I would share it with them. And my ultimate hope was that they would listen to that interview or read that article, and hopefully that information would make their life better, or even just excite them, because it was about something they were interested in. So then I just decided to cut out the middleman and create my own content that I could share with the world and hopefully make a positive difference. So to whoever's listening right now, Thank you so much for taking the time to find my podcast and press play and listen as you drive in your car or cook dinner or whatever you're doing. And if it moves you and makes you think of someone you care about, share it with them and maybe you could put a smile on their face or give them an idea to help them make a breakthrough on their work or feel inspired that day to create new art. Just last week, a fellow Canopy studio mate, Rebecca Bennett, said she had been feeling gloomy. And when she listened to the interview with Bale Creek Allen, it totally lifted her spirits. And she had a great day after that and felt inspired. And I just thought, wow, that is so beautiful. We're all in this together. So why not try to make it as painless and fun of an experience as possible? And whatever you're doing to make a positive difference in the world, just know that it does matter to people and that they appreciate it, whether they tell you or not. This week's episode is with contemporary artist Roy James, who creates sublimely beautiful abstract paintings and constructs that are a combination of sculpture, painting, and architecture. He has been a full-time artist for over two decades, and throughout his life has worked through a lot of diversity and limiting beliefs to arrive at a healthy place ready to take the next leap of faith. I'm so grateful to Roy for what he shared about his life. Please enjoy this raw and fascinating conversation filled with wisdom, and when it really comes down to it, love. Here is Roy. Hey, Roy. Well, thanks for being on my podcast. You're welcome. So, when you meet someone for the first time, they've never met you before, and they ask you about yourself or what you do, what do you usually? How do you usually describe yourself?
1: I just say i 'm an artist, yeah, and i don't honestly i don 't go any deeper than that ah. um, I think if they continue to ask questions and of course i'll i 'll get into more of the detail, but I just keep it kind of intentionally vague, yeah, and it 's not that I want to hide anything. I just think that um that 's a question that gets asked with without a lot of genuine interest behind it, yes <laughs> you know it's just kind of a um, it's just know. like something you ask someone exactly so are they serious do they really want to know me what do and you do <laughs> so i say i'm an artist if they want to query in deeper than that then i'm happy to go in further than that
0: yeah Typically. so then maybe if they were interested like i am then they would say what kind of art do you do
1: exactly and i'd say and then i'd start saying well i'm an oil painter and and a uh, painter in general and i work in acrylic as well and i do contemporary artwork and i've been doing it for 20 years full time now
0: yeah yeah. yeah, well, I was reading the bio on your website, and it's such an interesting story how you actually didn't start creating artwork until you were 28.
1: Yeah, that's kind of true. I mean, I had the ability from the time I was, you know, a little kid, and I recall my uh, kindergarten teacher literally calling my mother into school. And I thought I'd done something bad, and <laughs> yeah. I remember she pulled out my drawing and said, I want you to look at what he's doing, yeah. you know. And uh, and then I, rem- I also remember just about every school teacher I had after that would recognize that talent and in some way encourage it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I knew I had that that sort of gift is what they'd call it, but I never took it seriously and never thought I'd want to do it as, as you know in a professional way, as, as yeah. a lifestyle way. And so that's something that didn't happen until much later. And where did you grow up? I grew up in El Paso, Texas. I was born in Alamogordo, New Mexico, which is about 60 miles away. It's a tiny, tiny little town. Um, But I have no memory of it. We moved to El Paso when I was about one or two years old. And I grew up there, uh, went to, I think, two years of college, and was in a a sort of punk new wave band back in the early nineties, 80s, actually. And uh, we moved to Austin to kind of make it in the music business. We were going to be here for a little while and moved to L.A. And I just kind of got stuck here.
0: <laughs> okay. So do you feel like you didn't pursue art as much early on because it wasn't encouraged? Was it kind of like, oh, if you do that, you're never going to make a living kind of a thing? Yeah, or?
1: exactly. That's, that's what I call the, the sort of starving artist myth, which yeah. was um, kind of indoctrinated into me at an early age. And, uh, you know, what I heard was, it's too bad you can't make any money as an artist until you die, which, <laughs> yeah. is, you know, that's going to discourage you from wanting yeah, to Yeah, I would that. say so. And so...
0: Why do you think they had, your parents or whoever was giving you that message, why do you think they felt that way? Oh, I, I think mean, it,
1: that comes from fear, right? I mean... Well, yeah, I think it, it's truly, it's a real myth that exists out there. The whole Van Gogh thing, you know, he suffered and and, you know, shot himself, and then he hadn't sold a single painting until yeah. after he died, and... And that's kind of the big, you know, romantic attraction beyond the beauty of what he actually did. He did beautiful work. I don't want to discount him for that. But there's that sort of mythology that Mm -hmm. accompanies his story is very romantic, you know, and and, uh, puts artists in this very sort of, um, I don't know, metaphysically beautiful place. Like
0: mythic, yeah. But
1: it's not true, you know. And that's the thing that I had to learn was that uh, you can actually… Be a successful artist and and earn a you know decent living, and be really happy at what you're doing. Not be starving and miserable and suicidal. You know, uh,
0: <laughs> thank goodness.
1: Yeah, yeah. But wow. that was something I had to learn, and it actually was something that when I finally did choose to start doing art, like it happened, it was a, a spiritual moment for me. I I had no inkling that it was going to happen. But I was invited to take an art class with a friend at ACC at the community college. I was studying computers. I'd given up on music and I wanted to study computers. This was kind of in the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. She invited me to take this elective course. I needed one for my, my degree. And... uh I'm not kidding you, it's a life drawing class and in the first drawing I knew I wanted to be an artist. Mm. That was it. You know, so it kinda reawakened that whole thing I'd had as a child and made me realize that I had something that really was special. But then I had to confront the mythology yeah. which terrified me. I thought, Oh, you want to be an artist? You you do not want to go down that path. That is a path of pain and suffering. Wow. You know? And um and so when I first started painting I had so much conflict every time I would start a piece the anxiety that tore through me uh was directly related to the future i thought i was creating Mm -hmm. you know and i had to redesign that whole thing i i had to uh uh, kind of look at what it was that i believed and this you'll find this in so many self-help things you know it's like look at what you believe your beliefs are so powerful and i had literally wrote down oh you know i'm i'm gonna die starved in some alley someplace and (laughs) and, you know i'm Unloved, though critically acclaimed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, your heirs would be rich, but not right. You. I wouldn't even have heirs. You know, it's like that. Oh, right. It'd the, it would be worse than It would be alone, unloved. Die alone. <laughs> and that was enough to kind of send me over the edge of having tremendous anxiety about doing it. But then I started mm. writing down, well, what would you like to create? You know, you're an artist. You can create your future. And it was different. I wanted to create beautiful works that inspired people that that drew people together that um that inspired me that reflected beauty and and i grew up you know in an environment that had a lot of uh pain and suffering in it Mm. to begin with so i didn't want to be an artist who was creating these social commentaries and Expressing his pain. I, I wanted to oh, yeah. create an alternative for myself, you know, because the pain part was real easy. Mm-hmm. um The beauty part was not. And so it was, mm. in a way, an exercise to create things that I wanted to see in the world rather than what I felt like I'd, I'd always seen.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. I've never thought of doing it that way. Like a lot of. Yeah, the myth is that the artist who lives this tortured life is going to explore that through their art and it's going to be obvious in their art that they're yeah. tortured and they live this life but you were trying to balance that with the opposite
1: yeah i just see so much of it everywhere i mean especially you know when you turn on the tv and with what's going on in the world now it's just yeah it's just overwhelming and i sometimes i feel art can't even rise up to the reality you know it's the, the reality of how it, and how it's being expressed through the internet and through media is so in, incredibly intense that art almost pales in con- comparison mm-hmm. you know um but i've seen artists who have pulled it pulled it off but for me i just i didn't want to reaffirm that it's not that i wanted to be in denial about it i'm not somebody who lives with his you know head buried in the sand i'm very active in so many ways but I just didn't want to be creating another avenue that just reflected the same thing Mm -hmm. I had to I had to create an alternative
0: it seems like yeah the world is a hard place and there is a lot of turmoil going on I I guess I'm just as you were speaking I was thinking of Maybe the art can't make it all better, but there's moments, you know. Maybe there's just you have a piece in your house, and you just you come home, you have a hard day, and you just have that moment with that piece, and that uplifts you. I mean, mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's a tall order to ask it to like make everything beautiful and great again, you know.
1: Yeah, and, and I don't want to do it in a way that seems you know fluffy and fake. That um, it just reminds me of the David Lynch movie, A Blue Velvet, you know, where they've they've got this sort of Robin. Uh, sort of symbol that shows up uh, uh, the the bird at the beginning, and in the beginning, I swear it's it it appears like a real bird, but in the end, they're looking at clearly a fake bird. It's like this mechanical yeah. robin that the way it twitches its neck is mechanical, and and you know they've gone through this experience of going to that dark underbelly of the world Mm -hmm. and at the end you know they're looking at beauty but it just all looks very fake and plastic yeah and i didn't want to recreate that i didn't want to just say look i just want to create beautiful you know distractions Ah. i'm trying to find more of that sort of sublime beauty that you find in in art when i'm i'm staring like a a work by rothko or someone like that where you know it's an indistinguishable image but the experience I have is really profound, you know, and that's what I'm looking for in the work that I create. It's that kind of deep beauty that's very substantial um, and, and not some sort of uh, decorative facade to cover, to mask the ugliness that's there. Because I believe it's both there. I mean, I believe the beauty exists and I believe the darkness exists. And I just see the darkness all the time. It's in my face. But the beauty, that sort of sublime beauty in life, is, is much more difficult to, to find. Yeah.
0: So earlier on, before you had this kind of transformative moment, how did, did music feel like an artistic
1: endeavor at all? I mean, were you writing music? Yeah, music is so different because I've stayed in touch with it, and I'm actually really exploring songwriting, which is a new art to me you know, and I wrote songs before I became a painter, but they were very superficial. There was no depth to them. I didn't have a a background in strong songwriting. And I grew up in El Paso where music was generally pop radio. Mm. And so, you know, I was born in 1961. And so for me, the first thing was the Beatles. I mean, I just remember my mom tells me, I don't, I don't remember this. She says, yeah, you know, when you were, you were just a little child, you know, I, I'd take you to the shopping uh, mall and uh, you would be singing She Loves You, Yeah, 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 you know. (laughs) And, uh, and, And I do remember that as I, you know, like six, seven years old, the Beatles had released several albums by then. But I loved every one of them. And I would pretend I was, you know, Paul McCartney or John Lennon and I would play a little plastic guitar and I'd make my little cousins listen to me as though I was performing the records that I was playing. Yeah. And you know, when I was thirteen, I got my first guitar and um started playing and wanted to be in a band so badly i mean, but for me it was it was it was the adulation that I loved um you know the musicians got, mm-hmm. but it was also the music I loved the music, and I was really good at that as well, t- too, you know yeah, and i'm I'm discovering that too. It's like, hey, you've got something here too. So it was all music for me and art was just kind of this thing that I did to to impress my friends, you know. Mm. I would do this really cool drawing on top of my desk and then just kind of wipe it off with spit afterwards, you know. And my friends would be like, "Oh my god," you know, and it would be some sort of, you know, Roman soldier on a horse, you know, but in in a lot of detail, very yeah. realistic.
0: So you must have put in hours
1: of practice. I mean, you must have just been drawing your whole I, you know, I drew Childhood. a lot, but I never practiced. I mean, I th- that was the thing with music. And um, I, I say I never practiced. I would just sort of go into these meditative states where I would do what I felt passionate about. And you can call that practice. But for me, it was just doing what I love to do. Yeah. But um, they both happen real organically and naturally you know Mm -hmm. i got on a piano and just sort of picked up how chords were played and started playing progressions and had no idea what i was doing i picked up a guitar and uh just started learning how to finger pick and write songs and nobody was teaching me these things Mm. so i think i'm one of those people that for whatever reason that hemisphere of my brain it opens naturally and sort of figures things out it's just a natural thing um
0: so you must not have had any people in your family that were artists that you could say well they did it i could do it
1: my mother did she's very you know talented and uh And a real heartfelt sort of artist, which I I think always amazes me about the things she does. There's so much of her heart in them, which I sometimes lose sight of. Mm. And so it's nice to be reminded of that. But she, I'm certain of that I got that ability from her. My father was an engineer, so he was all numbers and solving problems and figuring out you know how to do things and that shows up in my work as well hmm. to some degree there's a, there's a lot of the process aspect of it can have a lot of the engineer side as well so I got a little bit from both of them you know but my mother was not a serious artist you know she wasn't a full-time artist and she was a full-time mother and that was kind of overwhelming And I think you you know anybody who's had kids yeah. and is trying to be an artist it's not an easy thing you know, and especially for a woman in her time, you know, and a Hispanic woman, a, a Mexican woman, you yeah. know, it's uh, her her future was kind of laid out before and had nothing to do with her doing what she, she really loved to do. So. Yeah. But she's done it. She's found a way to do little, you know, pieces here and there, and and I treasure them when I see them. So.
0: Yeah. That makes me think of then once you, you took this drawing class and you kind of had this realization, then you started making work and you had this – these feelings come up in this fear, but didn't you at the same time have like a full-time job? I mean, was it that risky to do work in your spare time? Well, I, you know,
1: initially I didn't have the full-time job. I had school and I was putting myself through with grants and student loans. And, um, I had a part-time job. And so this two year degree actually took four years. And, but I, my degree was in, in, uh, It was in computer information systems, which is basically a computer degree that a community college gives you back in the day. But I convinced the teacher when I wanted to become an artist, I convinced the teacher to let me um, substitute a bunch of commercial art courses for Mm -hmm. some of the computer courses. And I was in the industry at the exact right moment to do that because there were a lot of industry people who did things with pen and ink and, you know, scissors and mm, glue yeah. and stuff like that. And and it was just transitioning over into using a computer for yeah. that sort of stuff. And so, there were a lot of people without the skills, but with, with the talent. And then there was me with a lot of the skill, but, you know, uh, very um, limited experience. But that put me in a position where I could get a good job right away. Mm. And uh, I did some contract work initially, but then I started working with Dell Computer and in their art department, you know, Mm -hmm. with all that stuff. But, um, so, um, anyway, I didn't want that job. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to start working full-time at a computer company. I wanted to be an artist, but they offered me this full-time job. And that was, you know, coming out of so many years of, um, being a student and lacking security, that security was really seductive. Oh yeah, sure. And, uh, I took the job and it, You know, um, and I was already sort of copying old master paintings. They didn't expect me to stay there long. You know, they saw these paintings that I was doing and they said, man, this guy's going to quit. But I was there for seven years. Mm, Wow. And that's what security can do. It just traps you. Uh, Oh, yeah. Especially if you're as insecure as I am.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Aren't we all?
1: So I kind of got stuck there. But during that time, I um, did a a couple of old masterpieces and took them to a, a gallery that also framed it was an art gallery it was called the Terrytown gallery which has become the davis gallery mm-hmm. um bill davis was the owner and uh it was in Terrytown here in austin and i took some of these paintings in to get framed and when i went to pick them up the assistant there told me you know we had a lot of people who wanted to buy these paintings <laughs> that's kind of a good sign yeah you know? And she said, do you want to Do you want to um, sell them? And I said, um, I don't know. And then the bill came out and he said, yeah, you know, we had all these people who wanted to buy them. Are you interested in selling them? And I said, well, let me think about it. I didn't want to sell them. I still didn't, you know, I heard, I asked him, I said, well, how much do you take? And he said, well, we take a 50% commission. I thought, oh, that's like, just crazy. Yeah. And so I said, no and i went off and tried to sell those paintings for about a year, year and a half or something oh. like that, maybe even 2 years. It was it was a long time and i couldn't sell them. You know, i put them up in antique shops and you know here and there and just couldn't get anyone to buy them. And so i devised a strategy and i was also doing a lot of personal growth work in a group therapy setting mm. and also with an individual therapist to deal with kind of a lot of the trauma of my childhood yeah and was really encouraged to go back to the gallery and tell him that i wanted to do a show so i went back with a painting that was fairly original and the the plan was you know i'm going to take it back and everyone's going to want to buy it and when i go pick it up he's going to tell me that and i'm going to say well yeah I do want to sell it, and let's have a show. And so I dropped the painting off, and two weeks later when it was framed, I went back to pick it up, and sure enough, he comes out and says, you know, we had all these people that wanted to buy this painting, do you want to sell it? And he looked kind of frustrated with me, too, because I'd been there before, two years earlier, and never returned. And so this time I said, yes, I, I want to sell it, and I want to do a show. And so we agreed to do a show eight months later. Which gave me time to produce something. Mm-hmm. I was terribly nervous on the day of the show, and it was a two person show with another artist named Steve Bruniak, who I think is just a phenomenal artist. And eight months later, I show up to hang the show, and it's Steve and um, Bill and I. And, um, you know, I was just so intimidated uh, by them. Steve had this huge history of work and, and this incredible CV, and I had nothing, you yeah. know. But on opening night, I had a really successful show and sold, I think we sold like eight or nine paintings on opening night and a few more by the end of the show. And I made, you know, a fair amount of money on that one show and then some more money selling work during that year. But it just kind of gave me the confidence, yeah. you know, gave me the confidence to think, I can, I can do this. You
0: know. what was your work like at this time and like how did it complement with the the other gentleman that was in the show
1: yeah well it was it was actually very complimentary he he does these very, I would describe them as it, like if Dr. Frankenstein went to art school. You know? okay. I mean, he does these like <laughs> just intimidating pieces that are, you know, aesthetically they're beautiful, but also he, he's, in, well, he's into that dark place, you know? Yeah,
0: okay. Like
1: <laughs> if I can describe a piece, there was a, a sort of an altar piece that was these steel uh, panels that had concrete uh, set into them. And then there was, I think, um, these two handprints on steel handprints in the concrete in the center panel. And on top of that, it looked like there was a, an auto transparent fuel filter that was filled with formaldehyde and, oh, a, wow. and a centipede. <laughs> <laughs> and there were these two indented handprints in the center. And if you knelt before the altar and put your hands into the handprints, you would be electrocuted. Whoa. It was powerful. I mean, and his work had that quality to it. It was, And I thought it was amazing. It was profoundly you know, it had beauty to it and it was also had a lot of of depth to it too. And and, in an individual style, like I'd never seen. And I don't think I've ever seen to this day, but my work was all this sort of derivative Renaissance old master painting work that was really based around beauty. It had this catavaggio quality. So when you placed them next and it also had this sort of mysticism. So if you placed them next to his, there actually was some sort of, um, continuity. Mm. And I thought they worked really well together. And, you know, uh, Julie Speed was actually part of that show as well. She wasn't officially part of the show, but uh, she'd had a real successful show I think a few months earlier there. And Bill um, decided to kind of include some of her prints on opening night. And so she and and Steve, on, when we were hanging work, she was there and uh, they were kind of making up this weird myth about my work and his work and, you know, like space aliens came and abducted this boy that I had painted who looked like he was floating in, in air, you know, in yeah. darkness. And so that related to this piece over here. And it, we were all laughing about it. It was all crazy and fun. But yeah. um, it was really, it was a, it was a fun experience to nice. me. A great first show to have, you know.
0: Why do you think you started with that kind of work initially? Like that was kind of
1: the, your first foray yeah.
0: into painting.
1: Well, I, I had you know, I hadn't really brought up been brought up in a way where I was that connected to art. My mother was a docent, and uh, she gave tours at the El Paso Museum. You know, one of which I got to go to. She taught me a lot about the Renaissance work, about how they did stuff, but I had no schooling. I, I didn't get a, a degree in art. You know, I took some some classes and. And they weren't very well taught um, at the Austin Community College, but they were very inspiring. Mostly, what I learned was by teaching myself, and so I learned about art by just going out and getting books. And the most obviously beautiful things were the things that initially attracted me, and of course, the Renaissance and the Renaissance painters were just—you know—they're undeniable. They're just their work is so physically beautiful and profound. To, virtuostic. I mean, the mm-hmm. the technique is just amazing, and there's just no denying how profoundly beautiful they are. And so I was seduced. You know, yeah. I, I was like, "This stuff is fantastic. These are the masters. This is yeah. what I want to do." Yeah. And I also think that deep inside, I said that I was doing uh, this therapy work at the time. I think I, I said that deep inside, I was. Going through this need for discipline. You know, I just felt like I had no connection to tradition, to discipline. My life was very undisciplined. So I think subconsciously, when I saw the work of the old masters, I saw the discipline and the tradition, yeah. and I wanted to connect to it. So it was very attractive, you know, and that changed in the future. But initially, that's what attracted me. And I think I was trying to, in a way, by doing the work. Give myself the experience of that tradition and discipline that I was looking for, mm-hmm. you know. And it was a great way to learn how to paint, too. Yeah, I, I believe if you can do that kind of painting, then you can do any kind of painting because you learn to control the paint. It. I think there's so many painters who don't have that skill, and they they are controlled by the paint rather than the other way around. Mm. And uh, that's kind of a helpless feeling when you start doing a work, yeah. a, a piece.
0: So you had this great first show, and then you started selling work, and what happened next?
1: Well, I stayed on with Dell, and um, the only gallery that was representing me was Bill Davis. And so I, we scheduled another show for a year and a half later, because that's how he worked. It's like every year and a half, you'd get a show. Mm-hmm. So during that time, I started producing work uh, and selling work in, in between through that gallery. And I had another show with him that was even more successful. Mm. And it was also emotionally exhausting, you know, to mm. work full-time. At this time, I was working full-time. And uh, to do the kind of work that I had to do for that show, again, this old master style, it just takes forever. Yeah, At least it took me forever to do a show's worth of paintings and work full-time. So, at the end of that show, I just thought, I can't do this again. This was exhausting. But I think it was that year that I'd earned half of what I earned at Dell, my income. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I'm doing this part-time and I earn half my income of what I'm working full-time at Dell. I'll bet you I could earn that income selling work, you know, if I quit my job. So I started sort of mentally preparing myself to leave. Mm. And uh, that took like another year and a half before I finally left to let go of the security. And I had a little bit of Dell stock at the time that was worth around $50,000. And mm-hmm. so I said, this is going to be my safety net. Yeah. And I turned my notice in and quit and uh, had a terrible first year. Mm, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I just didn't earn that much money, but I was able to kind of support myself through the stock. And, uh, and then the second year was better, you know, and closing in on that number of what I was earning at Dell. And then the third year, I surpassed the number mm-hmm. you know i surpassed the salary that i had at dell and i also worked harder than i ever had that third mm-hmm. year it's like i produced so much art i was on this thing where i just thought i, I want to see how many pr- paintings i can produce in a year and and they have to be beautiful they can't just be like you know i did yeah. you know a, a hundred paintings and- but they were all crappy you yeah know? it's like they had to be good high standards yeah. so i did and it was another exhausting thing. And that was the year that I surpassed my income at Dell, but I also felt like I nearly had a nervous breakdown it, <laughs> yeah. and I didn't enjoy the process at all. So I decided that was, it was nice to know what I could do, you know, if I needed to put the gas on, but you know, I was going to step back a little. And I looked for how am I, you know, how am I going to increase my income and, and not work harder and harder and harder? And, uh, I met this woman who uh was a friend, and she was kind of like a a financial coach mm-hmm. and she had a birthday party and I went to it and I met all these people at the party who were you know we'd just say well how do you know how do you know her and and uh they'd say, well. You know she works for us, and we 're doing all these incredible things that we never thought we could mm. do you know we we've we've just moved up to this new space, so I thought well maybe i 'll hire her and which i did i, I said you know i 'm kind of i 've hit this plateau i 'm working as hard as I can, and i've seemed to you know i I want to earn more money and uh she said well uh let 's start working and she got into my finances and started breaking things down and at this point, when I earned money, it all just went into one bank account. And if I needed money for my business, I drew it. If I needed money for my personal, I drew it. There was yeah. no distinction between the two. There was no salary or anything like that. I
0: think that's the way most people. Are, yeah, you know, <laughs> it would never
1: even occur to me to do anything other than that. But she said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna figure out where you're how you're spending your money. And um, and I was married at the time as well. She went through. It took her about three months, I think, to kind of mm. go through all my finances for the previous year, how I spent my money, and then um, put them into some computer program and then start breaking it into pie charts and (laughs) that sort of thing. And uh, my ex-wife, who I was married to at the time, had started to work for me. You know, she she had lost her job. This was like during 2000, during the big market crash. Mm -hmm. And she had lost her job. So I said, well, why don't you work for me and, and sell my work? So this business manager I hired came back to me and said, well, you have to earn... X amount of money a month to pay yourself and your wife and your business expenses. And it was more than I'd ever earned in a single month ever. And she said, You have to do that every month. Mm. And I just thought, why in the world did I hire this woman? (laughs) You know. Anyone can come up and ask me and say, Well you have to do the impossible, you know. And she said, no, you can do it. You can do it. And I I just really didn't believe her. I felt so overwhelmed. Like, you talk about having my beliefs of what was possible challenged. Well, she was, like, in the face of it. Mm. She just came up to it and said, you know, you can do this. You can earn this much money. And uh, my ex-wife went out, and I ended my relationship with Bill Davis because he didn't want me representing myself here in Austin, and I felt like I had to do that. And so yeah. we ended that. My ex-wife went out and on day one, she came back and she said, you know, I think I sold um, this painting and that painting and this painting, which was, I think, more than I'd sold through the Bill Davis Gallery the previous year in that one day, Mm. you know. And in that one month, she had outsold my entire previous year. (laughs) <laughs> and
0: like, it, how did she know how to do that i mean well, how, I, what was I, she doing
1: i think she, first of all i think she has a very extroverted personality and she has a, a, a selling ability right now she's a um a realtor she sells yeah. real estate okay. so she has that personality um which i think is really important she you know somebody who's got the the courage to get into a car with a few paintings and just go up to a uh, you know, an interior designer, an architect and say, this is what I do and come home having sold pieces, you know, yeah. that's a gift. It's not like something anybody can do. Yeah, now it's hard. And, uh, and I've learned this in having so many people try to sell my art. Some people have it and some people don't, mm. you know, but it it just woke me up that year I tripled my income, you know, from the previous year having already surpassed what I did at Dell, the next year I tripled that. And that blew me away. You know, it just blew me away. And I I don't want to be so hung up on money, but when you earn a lot of money, you have the freedom to do what you want to do, especially as an artist. It's freedom, for sure. And it gives you a lot of power in the world, you know. I mean, I've had galleries that want to represent me. And I say, well, and they say, but you have to, you can't sell out of your studio. And I said, well, I'm sorry, you know, uh, this is how much I earned out of my studio last year. And the day that you can surpass that is the day you can tell me I can't sell out of my Mm -hmm. studio. And then galleries will say, well, we'll work with you then, you know, (laughs) because they realize they don't have. The kind of power they typically have over an artist Which is an artist who doesn't really understand their, How to market their work or how to Or don't realize their own power Yeah, I mean yeah. they're the one creating the art Right, I mean, they've, they've sort of given it over To this other person mm. And so um, I went in Armed with a lot, you know, it gave me a lot Of confidence and I didn't have to show with Anybody if it, I didn't want to And actually when this started I Completely let go of all my gallery representation I had a gallery in Houston and one In Santa Fe And I just ended all those relationships Mm. because I felt like I was the energy that I was spending to maintain those relationships, to ship work to them, to monitor it, to try to get paid, which was really hard sometimes. Um, to get work returned damaged send, it, was, know, it was yeah what? damaged you Loss. know getting people to pay me for the damage and then it was so easy out of the studio you know i w- i didn't have any of those things happening and i thought my gosh you know why am i doing this it was a big change and it boy it really it really uh, worked out for me yeah you know and for 10 years that's how i did it up until 2010 when Laura Rathi approached me from Houston mm-hmm. and i decided to have her represent me again there
0: a couple things it makes me think about limiting beliefs that we have yeah. about what's possible. And then also kind of something I've been confronting myself is just like where you, you think about something you want so badly and then you actually get it. And it's like, wow, this isn't what I thought at all. Like when you were saying like, oh, I finally made it to where I re- had replaced my Dell income. And then you're like,
1: this sucks because <laughs> I'm yeah. killing myself. Right. Oh. You know, and that's that's the thing. It's like this process of adjustment. And what I love about the abstract paintings that I do now is that that's what they all are from beginning to to end. They're just this process of adjusting and readjusting and looking at what's working and what's not working and then, you know, um, finding a way to make it work, you know, and that's just such a life lesson in every single painting that I do. It's like a meditation for life Mm. because it, it all is a process of adjustment, you know, it's and looking at what's working and what's not working. And, and that's what my career was like it was like uh um this examination of the things that were uh flowing mm-hmm. you know and where there were barriers and what was causing the barriers how do i lift the barriers do i even want to go down that path anymore mm-hmm. um and i have to tell you You know, I said that Laura Rathis are representing me in uh, January. As of yesterday, she's no longer representing me. Mm. And I'm not saying this in a malicious way. I've opened the door for her to sort of continue selling my work. But, you know, we had a real strong run and we'd we'd been selling work, but um, things just kind of changed and I felt the change and I didn't like the way I, you know, the representation I was getting. I just felt like it was kind of absent in a way. And again, knowing my own power and strength as selling as an artist, I was doing really well out of my studio. And I had to ask myself, why am I closing off Houston and Dallas, those markets, you know, in a space where I don't feel, where I feel like I could do a better job, Yeah, you know? And so, again, you have to sort of take control of the power you have. You have to realize how much power you have and take control of it and feel empowered because then you can really negotiate what you want rather than feeling like you're at the mercy of whether somebody's going to give you a show or not, or um, how well are, are you being represented between shows? Is your work even up on the wall? Do they talk about you or not? And, and if they want exclusivity, then you have closed that market off effectively for however they've mm. decided to represent you. Yeah. You know, well, so. it seems
0: like first you have to do the work. Yeah. I mean, the work has to be good to begin with. You have to have done
1: the work. You're absolutely right. You can't sell something that that's not, you know, strong. I mean, the market's going to tell you, Yeah, you know, whether um, people respond to your work or not. So, you've got to have that.
0: You put in the work, but then you have to have, like, so many moments you've talked about already. Like, you have to have the courage to move forward. Whether it's, like, I'm going to quit my job or I'm just going to start working on this piece. I mean, there's, like, so many moments of courage, like where do you, where do you think you find your courage?
1: Well, I call them leaps of faith, you know, I, I literally, and there have been so many and it's just going to be, I I know that as long as I'm continuing, continuing to grow as as a painter, as a creator, and as somebody who's growing my business, you know, it is one leap of faith after another. And, uh, I don't know how to describe that, you know, you, you know, I, I've, think that I was fortunate, you know, I grew up in a very dysfunctional household, you know, with mm. a really physically abusive father uh, who was violent. And my earliest memories of being being physically abused by this man, I mean, mm. l- literally beaten and and uh, severely, like to the point that, you know, somebody needed to step in and take the children out of that house, you know. And mm. my mother was being abused as well. And um, it was just such a terrifying environment for me. And I had so much damage around that when I became an adult, I I can't even express how wounded I was and wasn't aware of it. But I knew something was wrong. And I was finding myself more and more suicidal Mm. um, in my, I think, my late 20s and early 30s. Mm. And I finally hit this sort of bottom with that where I, I had this day where I just thought, you know, that was the day that if I'd had like a gun next to me, I would have committed suicide. Wow. I would have done it, and I, it, it scared me because I thought it would have been so automatic to do it that I didn't wouldn't even have had a sort of a voice in the choice at yeah. that point. Yeah. So I thought I better you know do something, and I was kind of I was going through this phase where I was a Christian, and so I was I was praying a lot, and I still pray a lot. I still I do though I don't consider myself a Christian um, or praying to a Christian God anymore. I still pray a lot but that kind of opened the door to getting help and uh i found a therapy place that like i said i started doing group and individual therapy and dealing with this trauma that had was so buried um and there was so much pain and anger and rage that was unexpressed yeah. that needed to come out and that's what was paralyzing me. i think that's what was bringing me down to that point where i was mm. suicidal but i started to heal And that experience of having this sort of, uh, you know, second family in the group that I had of people who supported and loved me and wanted to see me do well, which was something that I didn't really feel I got growing up. I think my mother tried as best she could in those circumstances to give it to me, but it wasn't enough. Um, There was something about going through that experience with that group that changed me. And it it made me realize that, you know, uh, that. I had to take these leaps of faith, you know, getting into that group was a leap of faith because you know, mm. I felt like I couldn't trust anybody and uh, learning to trust them was um, a scary thing for me. But um, having such a positive experience from that just altered me in a way that whenever I was faced with these challenges of, of here's the next scary thing that I need to do, I would, I would find a way to do it, find a way to have the courage to do it. And Coincidentally, my art started to change. You know, mm. going from that place where I wanted discipline and tradition, which was also the phase where I was a this born again Christian in this very sort of a fundamentalist church. I was in the Church of Christ mm-hmm. for a couple of years. Um, you know, that's this idea of tradition and discipline. You know, in in this sort of rigid idea yeah. of, and especially the Church of Christ. Here's a musician, and that church says you can't have musical instruments in the church. You know, you have to; it has to be your voice because in the Bible it didn't say that they used musical instruments. Yeah, you know, and they were so uh, literal about everything they interpreted. But I had to go through that phase, you know, yeah. because that was a phase that I was also suicidal. So I was trying to gain some sort of control. Mm-hmm. But then. You know, moving through that was this on the other side of it was this sense of okay, well, um, that kind of worked for me for that time, but I'm done with it now, mm-hmm. and uh, and I want more of the uncertainty. And you know, that's I say I pray, but the idea of faith to me, it has everything to do with uncertainty. So when I hear some Religious persons say, I'm certain about this. And I'm like, Ugh, there's no faith in that. You know, mm. faith to me is when you're really uncertain about something and you, you do it anyway because you, you you want to believe that there's something there. But that's when my I started really looking at, at abstract work and feeling so attracted to it because it was riddled with uncertainty. You know, yeah. I mean, um, the first time I walked into the Rothko Chapel, I literally got nauseous. You know, if you've ever been in the Rothko Chapel, yeah. it's these giant black Rothko paintings, you know, they're black. You go into this chapel, it has triptychs and diptychs all around you, and they are gigantic, floor to ceiling, I mean, mm-hmm. and they're all black. And it's it's kind of like, my interpretation was like Rothko was saying, you know, there's no certainty in your spirituality. You go into the void, mm. and you stare into the void, and what do you what do you find when you look into the void, you know? And the first time I saw that, I was a Christian, and it made me sick, you know? Wow. <laughs> I mean, I was like, oh, God. Yeah. But I think it was because there was something truthful in it that that really challenged me. And I started feeling this attraction toward, like, I wanted the uncertainty. I, mm. I wanted to find that. <clears throat> so, this old self started dying, and this new self started evolving, which was… Uh, uh, what I needed at the time in my work started to evolve as well, you know it became about staring into a blank canvas and and just starting to move that paint around and seeing what would happen and believe, and then seeing something beautiful happen, you know, which was another lesson in in taking a leap of faith you're doing the same thing when you stare into that canvas and start painting um with nothing in mind, Mm. you're taking a leap of faith. So again, it it was a lesson in life for me that when I was faced with, you know, this decision, like my most recent one day in this relationship with Laura and that I'm going to start representing myself in those spaces, what's going to happen? I don't know. You know, I earned a, a fair amount of money through that gallery and to say that that's going to change is a scary thing. But I've had enough experiences of Leaping into that space and seeing something really beautiful emerge, yeah, and something that that truly feels like me. That that it makes it easier every time I do it.
0: And you're you're feeling optimistic. You're not feeling pessimistic.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm feeling really optimistic because because it feels right too. There's something about getting to a place in a situation where you just feel this doesn't feel r- right to me anymore. I yeah. feel it's like being in a relationship with somebody and knowing that it's kind of over. Yeah. You know. Um when you when you finally end it, it's this sense of relief and almost freedom because you're out of something that you knew wasn't right, you know. Yeah. That's kind of how it is for me.
0: And you're so. doing both people in a favor in a way because then you can go look for the right thing or yeah. the next thing that probably needs to happen yeah. or
1: and, and I, I believe that it's like, you know, somebody once told me if you do what's in your highest good, then it's in everybody's highest good. Cause it doesn't work out that, you know, like somebody should have, that you have to sacrifice your highest good for somebody else to have theirs. That's this weird, ugly codependency and that yeah. sort of thinking, you know? Yeah. And so for me it is, yeah, you know, if I'm ending a relationship that doesn't feel right for me, then it, that's the right thing for the other person, even if it doesn't feel good to them, you mm-hmm. know? And so ending a relationship with a gallery or with, you know, a partner and, in whatever way it's 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 uh you know makes me feel justified you know Mm -hmm. in in not in a in a way that frees me from guilt but rather that helps me understand that i'm really doing something that's good for me you know in a a self-loving way
0: well we're in 48 minutes i don't know how long do you how long are you open to talking i mean i can go over an hour
1: like i said i'm i go with with the flow into like the work, the work right. you're creating these days. Well, you know, I'll be honest with you. I think the thing that I have to offer people is more about the challenge of breaking through these blocks. You know, it's like we can talk about my work. That's fine. But I honestly think that more artists are faced with what we're talking about now yeah. than the actual work. You know, you can learn technique. You can learn learn all sorts of things, or like how to that. market you, yourself you, know. or you, can, you can find yourself, but if you are struggling with a belief system that is not supporting you to to succeed, then you've got big problems, you know
0: yeah. I was just thinking about you had one post on your blog recently with the picture of you as a boy, and you had this quote towards the end of what you'd written, "Be afraid, you cannot have what you want. you are unworthy." yeah. That's what you had to go through to
1: get yeah, to here.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like you're worthy now? Do you feel
1: like you're uh, enough? I feel like um, I'm worth a lot more. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm more worthy. I, You know, the, I think there's there was a psalm that I, you know, the 23rd Psalm, there's one line that says, you know, he, he filleth my cup and it, run, it runs over. Something I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it's yeah. something to that degree. I'm the cup, you know? And as much as I'm able to take in that's what I'm going to get mm. and so I feel like it's my cup is just getting bigger and bigger and it's able to receive more and more but this it's still over you know mm-hmm. um, this idea of uh, abundance and prosperity it's it, you know I think so much of it is limited to by what we believe we're worth receiving you know yeah. we're not going to we're not going to get more than we believe worth worth and this is something I learned through a mentor of mine who recently passed away you know, he said he said if you won the lottery but you didn't believe you were worth that income, you'd lose it all. And that's so true. You hear so many stories, yeah. it's like the relationships they're in, the you sabotage the, it. You know, the inability to set boundaries with people, all these things that are that you learn when you when you realize that you're you're more valuable than you think you are. Um, those are the things that, that um undermine you having what you want. Or what mm-hmm. you know, which you you really could have, I think people get what they believe they're worth. you know. Yeah.
0: Well, tell me then about having cancer or what that taught you or how long was that process or how did that happen?
1: That was um, about a five-year... I mean, we're approaching the five-year mark now. Um, this August, it'll be five years of being cancer-free. But it was diagnosed... Actually, it was diagnosed... 5 years ago uh from early March. Mhm. Yeah. So soon. Yeah. And um it was stage 2 rectal cancer which is a you know, kind of uh in the same vein as colon cancer. It's it's in your rectum rather than your colon. And uh I got really lucky. You know, I was I was on a trip in New York City with my mother. I'd always wanted her to see New York and she was getting up there in years and we were traveling together and and we went to New York and You know, on the first day I went to the bathroom and there was blood and Mm. alarm bells, you know. I'm not one of those people that's like, "Mm, maybe that'll go away. I just immediately got on the internet and and Googled that symptom and saw the variety of things it could be. And one of them was cancer. Yeah, And I don't know how to say it. I just kind of immediately knew that's what it was, Mm. you know. And so I was kind of sick to my stomach and... You know I called my immediately called my doctor in Austin and had an appointment with him the day after I got back to El pass I mean austin didn't tell my mother about it and came back and went to the doctor and we decided to do a colonoscopy and that's when I remember doing it and a friend of mine went with me uh just for support and uh they knock you out and when I was waking up coming to it was just this this um sort of groggy feeling and the doctor's looking at me and he says, Well, we found a mass and it's cancer. And then I looked at him and I just said, How bad is it? And he said, It's metastasized. And I'm kinda grateful for the drug they had me yeah. after, because it's one of those that makes you feel kind of euphoric and I was like, Oh, it's okay. You know, <laughs> it's gonna be okay. But you of course when it wore out, I was terrified you know I was completely terrified and um, he called me two days later I called my family and of course you know everybody's crying and it was real emotional and I immediately had this like how how long have I got to live because you google that too and it's not good once you you know colon cancer once it's metastasized not a good prognosis Mm -hmm. and um, um, I was scary I mean it was one of those things where I couldn't sleep I felt terrified, my heart, I just, anxiety attacks all night, and I um, uh, could barely breathe, and then two days later, the doctor calls me up and says, who did the colonoscopy, and says, well, we got the biopsy back, and he said, it's not showing you have any cancer, and, and I thought, felt this sense of relief, and then he said, but I have to tell you, he said, I've been doing this for years, and I know cancer when I see it, and you have cancer, he said, Will you let me go back in and do another biopsy? We might have just missed it. And he said, If 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 you go under the assumption that you don't have cancer and, and you do, it, it it could kill you. Yeah. And so we did another colonoscopy and he did find the cancer the second time. But it wasn't metastasized. Oh wow. Yeah, it hadn't gone as far as he thought. I mean he, he just saw this huge bleeding tumor and I guess he made assumptions. But when they actually did a a ct scan they could see my lymph nodes and they all looked good and so it was stage two yeah which was like the best worst stage you can get because it's still curable you know it hasn't spread anywhere and so within like five days i was doing chemo and uh radiation i did I think, a month and a half of, of those. And the chemo, I, I a month and a half of chemo, a month and a half of radiation. Then a couple of months off, had surgery to remove what was left of the tumor. The tumor had shrank to the point they almost couldn't find it. Mm. And then I did another, I think it was about, I think it was another four months of chemo. It was really hard, wow. really hard. And people w- with more advanced, ages deal with it, on an even worse level, you know, but for me, it's like, I just suffered the chemo and the radiation made me so weak. Mm. and, um, and but the worst part of it for me was we got rid of the cancer. You know, my doctor told me who did the surgery. Once the cancer was gone, you're, you're cured. Um, he said, you know, if, if you were diagnosed correctly, and you were stage two, you officially don't have cancer anymore, you know. Now, they're going to watch you for the next five years in case something got missed. Mm-hmm. But, like, if that was stage two, you're done. So, I mean, I still thought, well, what if they did miss something? You know, because you do hear stories where some tiny little particle got into some other part of the body yeah. and, you know, just didn't get treated, and that's the one that came out and got them. But um, the treatment's what nearly killed me. It's I started having all sorts of... Uh, um, reactions to it and uh, which, uh, ultimately like a, a year and a half later my entire colon simply stopped working mm. and they call it a tonic colon it just there's a motion um, that your colon naturally has to move waste through your body and it just stopped mm. and I ended up in the ER and you know we didn't know whether they were going to have to remove my entire colon because it was working and and I had to go through you know, another year and a half of, of hospitalization, not, I I was only in the hospital for 60 days, I think in 60 days in 2015, that's a lot, Mm. there was one point where I was in there for almost 40 days, and I lost so much weight, I weighed 116 pounds when I normally Mm. weigh about 155, and I looked like a skeleton, and, um, I could barely walk, and, uh, but we saved the colon, yeah, (laughs) and, uh. I had a rock star doctor who just was, you know, uh, I got to tell you, the, just the best kind of doctor you can have. It's just unbelievable you can even find doctors like him. He was His bedside manner was just profoundly uh, generous, mm. you know. And he was really concerned about me, my surgeon. And, uh, and he knew what he was doing. He Yeah, he was really, really good at what he was doing. And he was the one who actually said, look, we can take your colon out, but I really think that if we just give it some time to to recover yeah you'll you'll get it back your body will do what it naturally wants to do and you'll get it back and and he said at your age you don't need to be walking around with a colostomy yeah and so so uh we did that and it saved it and today i'm in great health you know but um
0: And that whole time, were you working at all?
1: Well, not when I was hospitalized, but yeah, I was, you know, I was, even when I was doing chemo, I was working and I was so grateful because like that time that I was hospitalized for 40 days, checks were still coming in the mail from work being sold. Um, You know, that's one thing that you you can do as an artist is if you have enough work out there, it's working for you, even if you're not working. And so um, that kind of saved me in a way. But I was out in the studio. I mean, I had to do it because if I wasn't, I was just in, lost in these thoughts of I have cancer and yeah. I needed to get away from that, you know.
0: But, I'm wondering about those however many days it was where you actually thought, I'm definitely going to die. I mean, what was that like, facing that?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, not was, that you might not have been thinking that all this time, but I mean, that was like really like this is it.
1: Yeah, and I wasn't, you know. You, you know, it was that experience that uh, I think, few people get until they actually are going to die it's like you're in this sort of denial about it um you don't realize the scope of what it means and the the beliefs that i was going to have to face you know did i really believe in a god did i believe in any sort of afterlife did i are, am i okay with simply not existing you know mm-hmm. and also and i think the things that that hurt me the most when i realized that was as much as i had appreciated my life I didn't feel like I had loved people as Mm. deeply as I wished I had you know I felt like I was so lost in this idea that there was always time for that and um, I was doing things that weren't that meaningful to me including my artwork you know I realized that if I died I was one one of my regrets was not going to be that I didn't produce the art I wanted to produce I had produced a lot of art and I felt really happy with that the The main regret was that I'd not loved in life the way I'd mm. hoped to, you yeah. know. And uh, and I was looking during that period where I'd still thought I had um, metastatic cancer. I was looking at what my next year was going to be like if I survived it. Like, what
0: do you prioritize?
1: Yeah, on? I mean. I'm going to be doing chemo radiation, which are going to be making me sick and exhausted, and I'm not going to have time to be out there loving people, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or if, if I have, it's going to be in this frail sort of way, not this robust, you know, dynamic, you know, yeah, fully committed yeah. way. And so I thought that opportunity had passed me by, mm. you know, it was it just was... I had to look at my life and say, you know, loving deeply in my life was not going to be something that I got to have. Mm. And uh, it was painful to realize that. I mean, it 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 was something that I cried about, you know. So, when I heard that my cancer wasn't metastatic, that it was possible that I was going to be okay... That was, that moved to the top of my priority list. You know, I want to love my friends, my family, you know, open myself up to a relationship with a partner in some sort of way as deeply as possibly as I can. Um, and during the period of my treatment, I did, everything was so precious. Every mundane moment in life, which normally passed me by completely unnoticed was precious because I thought you only get a few more of these, you know, um, there's this great video with Warren Zevon where um David Letterman is interviewing him and he he'd been ca- diagnosed with terminal cancer and he was approaching the end and he was talking about how he realized he only got a certain amount of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and how precious they were to him. I totally got that. Yeah. You know, I was like, "Oh my god, he's so right, you know. Life really does come to an end." I never spent time thinking about that. It was always this sort of vague notion in the back of my head, but when I actually had to face it, it became so real um that it, it altered me. You know, it changed who I was.
0: And how did it change your work?
1: Um well, like I said, the big thing for me wasn't that I wasn't gonna change you know, that I wasn't gonna paint the paintings that I wanted to. It actually what it, I think it opened me to, the work that it opened to, to me was to be, you know, focus on becoming a songwriter. Oh, Which yeah. was something I had knew, you know, because I think my artwork had arrived to a place where I felt so satisfied with it. Mm. You know, I just felt like, no, I'm, I'm where I am. I'm the, my voice is kind of, it's realized itself and I'm producing the work I, I really want to producing. I'm the space that I want to be in as an artist. And if, you know, if I had died... Like I said That wouldn't have been A regret for me Mm. I would have thought No that I did that really well You know But the songwriting thing Was always this thing That I said You know I pick up my guitar All the time I come up with These great tunes Sometimes I write Lyrics Rarely I finish one But you know One of these days I'm going to approach this And then suddenly You're realizing You've lost Your opportunity To do that Mm. You know So I That was the thing That sort of Was reawakened to me And you know, in that sort of metaphysical way, all the things that I think um I needed to start approaching that were just kind of lined up right there, you know, you just did a songwriting workshop, recently, yeah, didn't yeah, you? that was one of the spaces that that i'd be, been begun exploring back then, and that was Blue Rock uh, Texas, which is a is sort of non profit run by a couple uh, that just really promotes um songwriting um as an art form. And um, and art in general too. And uh, it's just the most beautiful space that this couple has created for songwriters to come in and do their work and have shows and record. They have this world-class recording studio on the property. And um, I started showing up to that through an artist friend who had done one of a project with them. And I discovered, rediscovered the beauty of songwriting in a a deeper way than I'd ever known. And that sort of awakened a spirit in me that wants to explore that. And it's not, you know, I have a facility with music that I've had since a child, but songwriting is a really challenging thing for Mm. me. When I I listen to the songwriters that I love and what they did and see see what I'm producing, I feel like that artist who's just barely learning how to draw, Yeah, you know, and there's something that I love about that. It is. And it's, it's this wonderful space, you know, when you, you know, having had the success I've had in the kind of ease that I've had it in in my painting, it is nice to to find something that really just says, no, this is not going to be easy. If you want this, you're going to have to work really, really hard. You know, and uh, so that's kind of the, the creativity that's been reawakened or or awakened, I think maybe both, through my experience with cancer, mm. you know.
0: What does loving more look like? I mean, what does that mean? <sighs> well, um, like how does that manifest
1: with your family or friends or just holding yourself? people longer? When I'm in the moment with them, just being so appreciative of that experience of and knowing how how unique that moment actually is. Mm. You know, it's not like I'm going to get a lot of experiences with my little sister or my brother or my, this friend or my mother, you know, um, knowing that every experience is unique, you know, and, uh, and precious and really in that moment without any sort of statement, feeling that preciousness and, and, how um, special it is and I kind of live my life with this new philosophy there may be some sort of religion attached to it somewhere but um, and the philosophy is that if I had to live my life, this life over again and again and again and again, like if that was the way the universe was built, it's like you had this experience and then you just repeated it over and over and over what are you creating, you know, and I thought every time I had that moment, I I would ask myself if I had to live that again, how would I feel about that? And I'd think, yeah, I want to live that moment like again. You know, it's even picking up my cat and holding her and, and knowing that, yeah, you know, I'm, I want to create this experience as though I have to live it again and again and mm. again. And uh, that's what I think loving people looks like is um, not you know sort of being caught up in some sort of thought that's i've got to do these things and my mind is somewhere else and this is more important and uh and not really appreciating what that how special that moment was you know yeah yeah did
0: you ever want to talk about anything else i mean it just it's beautiful what you just said i just uh i had like yeah. one other question I could add to that, but I feel like you kind of answered it. Essentially, it's like, what is the truth of your life? But I feel like you just <laughs> talked about that.
1: I, well, I think my answer would be, I have no freaking idea. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. And honestly, it's a question that I wouldn't even bother answering. I've, I've been through so many experiences where I, was, I thought I had found the truth. And it showed up as, as the truth that was right for me at that time. Yeah. But eventually I outgrew that and, uh, and then there was this new experience and then, you know, then I feel like I'm, i a lot of those too, you know? So there's, there's no truth. I think, I think the most fundamental thing for me really is just try to live my life in that space where I'm just appreciating what's happening. Yeah, Yeah.
0: What does the future look like for you right now?
1: Um, Pretty good I, um, I'm i building a studio and home I bought some property I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of building my dream studio Which is going to be a 1,400 square foot two-story Well, it's going to be 2,800 square feet actually Yeah, It's going to be 1,400 square foot studio on the top floor And then 1,400 square feet of storage and shop space Where I can build some of my constructions below And then a, an attached 2,200 square foot house it's also two story. It has a view of the Colorado River mm. um, from the sec- from my bedroom. You'll be able to see it from my. There's going to be a rooftop terrace above the bedroom where I can go up and really get a look at the beautiful hill yeah. country valley yeah. that includes the river and a cliff off to the side that has a small stream that runs when it we get heavy rain and you can just hear that running water for oh, a few wonderful. weeks and it's just I feel like I've I've this new leap of faith for me is building this property, which is costing a lot of money. Yeah, and you know I'm financing the whole thing, Um, so uh, I'm going to be in debt for a long time. So there's this sort of tip of the hat to this belief that I'm going to be doing well in the future. Yeah, Um, but also, you know, regarding painting, that's where the exciting place of painting is for me. It's like when that studio is built. And I'm in there working. What am I going to produce? Mm. I'm I'm just feeling so excited about that. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I, I thought that this space was going to be something that once I got in, as I just said, once I got in, it was going to inspire me into the next space of my career as an artist. But I'm actually finding that is happening already because mm-hmm. you know the size of it, the scope of it, is so large for me that. I already feel like you can't wait to get in the studio. You've got you to step up to the plate now, you mm-hmm. know? So I'm just really excited about that. You know, post-cancer, feeling like my health is good again, you know, having learned the lessons I've learned in life, exploring songwriting, loving more deeply, and this new wonderful space to work in. It's like, oh, I'm just so excited. And I feel like I'm I'm in in the middle of the leap i've not landed yeah. yet but i'm literally in midair with my foot out believing that it's going to land somewhere really good so yeah yeah oh
0: that sounds wonderful yeah well thanks for your time yeah where do you how do you want people to interact with you or see your work or what do well,
1: you recommend? Uh, if you go to Roy r o i j a m e s. dot S.com, you can see my work. If you Google my name, you can see some of my earlier work. You'll see some of the Renaissance styled pieces come up under Google images. Um, you might find some other interviews out there. Uh, and i you know i say this to artists and i mean it from from the heart i mean it that my studio is open to you to come in and ask questions and pick my brain and you know if it's if it's um not technique oriented because i i'm very protective of my technique but if it's more around you know questions you have around how you're doing your um career and i can help you i'm more than happy to um share anything that i can with you you just need to contact me i don't keep regular hours so don't show up yeah you're not you're most likely not going to find me here and it's well, uh, very generous you can join my mail list there as well if you want to be on my email list okay yeah
0: well thanks roy i really appreciate it you're very welcome. really appreciate it thanks for listening If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues and consider giving it a review on iTunes. That could help others find it and motivate them to give it a try. At austinarttalk.com, you can visit each episode's webpage to find links related to the relevant and interesting people, places, and things mentioned by each guest. And thanks to those who have reached out with encouragement and positive feedback. I really appreciate it. All the best to you and take care.